Hello, my name is Parker. And I'm Ned. And this is the Force Unlimited, yet another Star Wars Unlimited podcast. Thank you for joining us, dear listener, on Ned and my continuing journey to become the McNeil Layer News Hour of Star Wars Unlimited. ADM, supermarket to the world. We're recording on November 19th, and as always, Ned and I have just completed a game of Tabletop Simulator, Star Wars Unlimited. When we get closer to March, they may be real. Uh, Ned, tell us a little bit about the match and any big takeaways you have from it. Well, first off, I want to note on that McNeil Lehrer News Hour comparison, I figured with your heavy use of Dear Listener that you were going for more of a Brad McNeely Wizard People Dear Reader vibe. But, I'm a huge uh, Brad McNeely Wizard People Dear Reader <laughs> uh, vibe. Uh, my wife's dream is to have two cats named uh, Professor Catface Meowmers, Meowmers and Ragtime Roast Beefy Weefy. So it's near and dear to our heart, but uh, I always felt like a dear reader, dear listener is just, it's, I felt Brad Neely was just kind of borrowing from a more homespun NP original pre the, the 1950s radio vibe that NPR in a sense still aspires to. Um, so yeah, but yeah, the game that we just played, the match. It was real close. So I was playing a variant of the Garbage Rollers uh, Home One Derby deck. Shout out um, to Garbage Rollers. Huge shout out to Garbage Rollers. Uh, deck is really interesting. A lot of very cool decision points. Han feels like a super high skill leader. And it was a real tight game. Honestly, the thing that I think clinched it for me was uh, I fired out a Spark of the Rebellion when I was expecting just to get information. There wasn't going to be anything val of value in your hand, but you had a backup Palpatine in there. And that saved me from absolute certain doom. Because I had yeah. an answer for one, but not two. I think my takeaway, I was playing, uh, I started with the Thork Green Vader deck that uh, won the recent first Swoo tourney. And my, my, I had started there and then tweaked and tweaked more towards my play style, adding in Fifth Brother, which hadn't been allowed, and working from there. My two takeaways were a strong confirmation, a continuing confirmation of my belief that Han represents probably the greatest disparity between my respect for a leader and my desire to play them, right? As you said, 110%. high skill level. I, I look at it, I'm like, oh, that's going to be good. Oh, that's going to be competitive. That burst uh, resource is strong. And I think about playing it and I just get chills. The other was at one point during the match, you were reasoning prior to playing a Spark of the Rebellion through what you assumed my hand was. Yes. And you were entirely wrong across the board. I was completely wrong. And I think that that stems from an assumption of, in a sense, one card draw without resourcing. That any card yes. that you've seen in my hand that you haven't seen in play is something that you're going to see in play. Two of the cards that you had seen earlier from your first Spark of the Rebellion, I had resourced. And so they yeah. were just, and so with draw two and the ability to resource, I feel like it, it makes me a little more curious and interested to play Thrawn because hand revelation is powerful now, but compared to a lot of other card games, I think the value of a hand reveal drops off very quickly. Oh yeah, no. Like I, of course, obviously you would resource the the cards that I saw previously because they weren't hyper relevant, and that's why I was hesitant about firing it off again. 
Uh, but like uh, Spark of the Rebellion is not thought seized because this is not Magic the Gathering. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So before we get into today's topic, I had a quick follow up to last week's, and I say last week's, but for our listeners, this will be 15 minutes ago. Was, My name is Monday. Uh, we, yes. Ned and I intend to drop the first three episodes all at once. So in the last week for us is My Name is mm-hmm. Monday, you went through stats versus cost. And yes. I was getting into a discussion on the internet, as I am wont to do, very civil, about uh, specifically Yoda and yes. how Yoda is under curve for stats. That for a three cost, a two four is beneath the curve at, based on what we've Slightly. seen from yeah. Swoo and what we expect. Yeah. Looking at your stats versus cost analysis from last week, and I don't know if anything's changed with new revelations, but. Uh, a six, uh, a three cost card should, by my looking at your uh, numbers, have a six point something amount of stats. So for me, I felt Yoda was exactly average, very normally statted for a three cost card. And the argument in the counter was, well, on curve at this point, we would expect a three, four or seven points worth of stats for a reasonable ability. And I was kind of curious, for my own sake, is do you think Ned? Just as we, you used to be, uh, maybe you, you used to be a, a, phys, a yeah. physicist. Uh, I don't want to damn your current profession. I used to be a lawyer. Sure. Defining terms is key. Is is curve just the expected average? Is curve the expected best that you can reasonably get? Because in my mind, if we're going for best, then you're looking at something like. Boba, who, but is if you get a, a head yeah, of curve, so, then does curve just become average, right? Right. So, this, I think that these terms are being used in a slightly sloppy way, which is kind of that's me makes it difficult. Let's not disparage no, no, the mean, person yeah, on the internet. Yeah, no, 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 no. Uh, just to, to be clear, I, I did a quick search on SWOO for uh, units with a resource cost of three, and you can see the mean unit has about six points of stats. So, you have some that are seven. And you have some that have five, and most of the ones that have five are space units. And there are exceptions. You know, Falc- uh, Millennium Falcon is above curve. Um, Wing Leader is theoretically below curve, but it goes up to like curve parity if you're able to uh, throw those experience tokens around. Uh, but when I'm doing this analysis, I'm assuming that all cards are weighted equally. Whereas I think that you're, uh, the person you were talking to, when you're talking about a more competitive framework, then a lot of the cards are just not considered, right? Like, I will play Death Trooper, but I'm not excited about the stats. Um, I will play Akbar, who has five points of like total stats, but that's mostly for the Enders the Battlefield effect. I'm not really interested in him as a body, um, although that squiddy face is beautiful, of course. So, yeah, so, so in yeah, your yeah. mind, yeah. the distinction between curve and mm-hmm. average cost, and I, I apologize yeah. for what I'm doing to math by saying average as yeah. opposed to uh, expected. Uh, linear yeah. expected. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. your last week's My Name is Monday, you were looking at yeah. all possible cards as opposed to Correct. competitively viable in, in, in constructed format cards. Yes. And That's so correct. And I, curve yeah. becomes the average of competitively viable cards. I think that that expected. was the way that the person you were talking to was using curve. When I think of curve, I think of curve less as a 
description of like their that point on the curve for stats. I think of it more as a description of the the mana the the resource costs that are in your deck. So if you have a, a high curve or a low curve, then you're talking specifically about the distribution of resource costs in your deck. If oh. they're saying like it's a good unit on curve, what they're saying is at three points of cost, how many expected stats are you seeing? And there's a lot of units that have seven points of stats that I think of as being more constructively viable than Yoda with six points of stats. But I also think of six points of stats as... Um, and we'll get into this more actually today, uh, okay. spoiler alert. Uh, but I think of, of seven points of stats as being, sorry, six points of stats as being expected. And this also might do, uh, my analysis is going to look more like the curves that you will see, the, the decks that you'll see in limited, as opposed to constructed formats where you're not going to, nobody nobody's going to run uh, Consortium Star Viper or watch as unproven. Actually, Consortium Star Viper is fine. Nobody's going to run Disabling Fang Fighter. Um, for the stats in very for the stats yes you are not okay all right okay so that explains the difference to me uh that's what i'm here to do is to learn but then unless barring objections let's get into today's topic recent ffg announcement that swu would have sideboards even more recent in the q a that there would be 10 card sideboards originally ned and i had created a list of topics we wanted to talk about and sideboards was a little further down the list is a maybe one day when we have enough to talk about it but i wasn't expecting there to be sideboards and when they announced that there were i slowly got more and more incensed uh, i i don't like sideboards and uh, i've brought i i have ned here today to kind of defend i'm putting him in the position of defending sideboards i want to walk through why i my unfounded uh emotional instinct dislike of sideboards and I'm going to force Ned to defend them, and hopefully he'll convince me, or less likely I'll convince him. I, my negative feelings, I think, I could put it in my own words, but I'm not going to. Uh, I'm going to punt. I'm going to appeal to authority. Uh, on a, one of the earlier Wampa Radio podcasts, uh, shout out to Wampa Radio, uh, Charmer, when discussing sideboards, Describe them as essentially a band-aid on a failure of game design. And that... Huge shot. Whoa. Huge shot. And yeah. and I stand by him. Uh, segwaying from Charmer's words into my own, the, the general pitch is that 1990s Magic, when Magic kind of first launched, it wasn't a very good game. Uh, now, it... We're allowed to say that things that are... You got to grade on a curve here, Parker. I yes, feel like exactly. Got, like, yeah, yeah. People aren't driving Model Ts today. We can recognize that thing was good for the time and was revolutionary and was yes. best in class when it came out yes. and yet by, held to the standards of today is bad. And I think yes. it's fair to say that 1990s Magic held to the standards of today was a reasonably bad game. Revolutionary. Yes. And before you at me, podcast at swoodb.com, before you get at me with your thoughts on why it was good, I'm going to limit conversation to people who had to teach the distinction between instants and interrupts, right? Anybody who's never had to teach a new player about instants versus interrupts doesn't get to talk about 1990s magic. So I, I thought you would mention anti or the batch rules for uh, uh, effect resolution. I'm a band uh, and bands <laughs> with others defender. So yeah, I go all the way back. Uh, 
not all the way back. There's going to be somebody who's but, listening who was yeah. there for alpha or beta, and I, I jumped in at unlimited in fourth edition. But, uh, I, and I kind of agree with that assessment that magic started out, it, it was kind of wonky, kind of unbalanced. You had cards that were only particularly good against certain decks. And so the idea of a sideboard is, well, hey, we're going to create situations that are bad, so let's just fix it by letting you tailor your deck after you understand you know you you have for example sure. one uh, i remember the literally the very first card i ever saw uh, that i ever opened it was right on the front of the pack uh was a, a circle of protection and those cards are in the, in the very limited environment that exists at the time were reasonably okay if you knew what yeah. color you were playing at they were great yes. to take to the kitchen table against your friend who was just running this dominant black deck and you just bring a circle of protection black, problem solved. But that card is yep. useless against any other matchup. And so how do you make that viable? You have a sideboard. And I, I, I think we've moved on. Build a better game. You don't, you don't need it. And you can have incredibly competitive, viable, high-skill games without sideboards, without the need for sideboards. Look at Netrunner. Netrunner didn't have a sideboard. I think Netrunner's Netrunner's top five uh, competitive uh, LCG TCG constructed deck games all time uh, in terms of skill. So it's absolutely viable. And before I let you kind of talk a little bit about sideboard, Ned, I want to point out that I I think it's very, we need to make very clear things can get conflated uh, best of three versus sideboard that I'm fine with the best of three. I have no problem with playing multiple games to even out variants. It's specifically the ability to alter your deck in between games that I struggle so, with. So I think tell me that, what a sideboard you, is. All right. So let's. I wanted to find my terms first. So the idea behind a sideboard is when you are playing a sequence of games, you have a collection of cards with which you can alter your deck. And the general rules about sideboards is that you pre-register the cards that you are included in your sideboard and that these cards are able to be swapped into your deck in between games in a best of n series. This is what is generally meant by the term sideboard. There are other sideboard-like functions um, that are not sideboards. So I'm thinking um, for people who are still playing Hearthstone, uh, the current version of ETC, where you are picking a, a selection of cards that you get to essentially choose from in the middle of the game, that's not technically a sideboard and not what we're talking about. Sure, sure, sure. It okay. functions in a sideboard-like function. And I think it's also important to talk to um, when you have a competitive card game like this, you have conflicting goals. You want a better skilled player to win, but you don't want the better skilled player to win always. You want things to matter, but you also don't want to make room for variance. Because if you don't make room for variance, you have you tend to get interests that become very niche. And not to like dive too deep down the, the rabbit hole of game design, but if we look at chess or fighting games, in those kinds of scenarios, generally, almost always the better player wins. It's not uniformly true, but more often than not, the better player wins. And as a result, it is hard for players to get started because you just you get obliterated. You know, like you 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 lose until you get good. And uh, the variance in TCGs in in card games is something that allows them to stay fresh. So that the the worst player can win some percentage of the time. And when we are playing more than one game to try and allow for more skill to show, and I think that sideboards are part of that 
to enable us to see more skill in our matchups. But uh, they're not going to be a complete uh, removal of variance. So, so in my mind, yeah. best of three removes a lot of the variance that if it can, you, know, you have a yeah. player who between deck and skill is favored to win sure. 70% of the time, they sure. can still get blown out 30% of the time if you're doing a best of yeah. one. But with a best of three, there's a far greater chance they will come out on top. They get to roll the dice right. more often. But how does this, so can you go, how does the sideboard uh, kind of increase the, the player skill as opposed to just the variance overall? Right. So um, I'm going to advance a series of arguments and we're going to talk about these in turn. So the first argument is what I'm going to call the matchup argument. So you said there are some decks that you are going to have bad matchups in, and that is true. The point of having a sideboard is to help you mitigate those matchups in which you are not favored. Matchups are variance. What, who you draw for your opponent is variance, and having your ability to change your deck composition will help to mitigate against that variance. Okay, but um, in my mind... Yeah. And I'm, I'm adding a whole new point in here that's not in sure. our script. But right. in my mind, the the addition of cyborgs, it, it allows it increases player skill if we evaluate player skill in terms of white room deck construction. And I think what it unfairly does is it penalizes meta literacy. That if there's a deck, you build a deck, you've looked at all right. the cards, you think about the cards, yeah. and you say, this is the best deck. So I'm going to right. build the best deck. But I have a weak matchup against Krennic. So I'll right. put some cards in my sideboard to alleviate the problem of Krennic. And if I come up against right. some Krennics, I'll probably lose the first game. I swap in some cards. And yep. now I'm in a much stronger position prepared to handle it. Yep. The problem is, if you in your head have said, nobody's running Krennic, so you you got to be aware of the risk. You put them in your sideboard. Yeah. Somebody recognizes that nobody's planning on running Krennic, so they run Krennic because nobody's prepared for it. Or, mm -hmm. they, you know, you get... I feel like meta-literacy is that Princess Bride, I know that you know that I know that you know. You get those upsets in big tournaments where nobody was expecting something and everybody's going to play these two decks, these two archetypes, yep. and somebody shows up prepared to take those on. And yes. without a sideboard, the per that person is rewarded. They they knew that nobody was prepared for Krennic. They show up with a Krennic that's prepared to dominate the meta. Yep. Nobody's nobody's you know it's, it, nobody's prepared for it. It's a it's a yep. disease that nobody has any resistance to. If somebody it, with sideboards, you yep. essentially penalize that skill to assess the you know you and I are going to play in the Pacific Northwest. Sure. We know that there's one meta. Everybody in totally Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Loves uh, Boba Fett, so right. yeah, be, be prepared for And then for we travel down to LA yeah. to play, and there's a complete, you know, we're we're just participating in a planetary qualifier, and yeah. we don't know the meta, and so I feel like sideboards remove that skill of because you can just slot in in a you know what you're good at in a white room. So it in fact, I don't that doesn't sound compelling to me from a it rewards skill standpoint. It do, I think it absolutely does reward skill but it rewards that white room abstract deck building skill as opposed to the ability to see what decks are actually going to be played. Who's going to this tournament? What do they, what do they favor? What do they, you know, so-and-so is showing up and I know they're always going to run green, right? Like they're always right. going to try to make green work because they're a competitive player who does that. that that's what they do. Right. Um, so I hear you about that. One of the things that I do want to talk to is 
Um, the experience of playing in a best of three against a deck that you are heavily unfavored against. Okay. Right. So let's imagine. Let's pretend that um, we're gonna we're gonna pretend that Krennic is some like meta breaker that's super good against um, the the dominant decks of bad of against fight. most things, but good against the top two leaders. Right. So what? Whoever one person is playing Krennic, right? Whoever draws into the Krennic deck first round. So let's say that there's there's twenty people. Eighteen of them are on the top two decks, both of which lose to Krennic. Uh, and one person is on some goofy thing, and one person is on Krennic, right? So of those 18 people, whoever draws into Krennic is going to have a bad time, right? And not only are they going to have a bad time, but they're going to have three games worth of bad time. Because you can't... Well, probably play, two. Like, sure, yeah, okay, point. You can point. only have yes, two you're bad gonna have games. You're going to have two games. You're going to have two games of worth of bad time. That, sure. It's a negative player experience to get wobbed to not be able to really do something about it, number one. And number two, when we're talking about reducing variance, from the point of view of those 18 players, the fact that I somebody is going to draw into the Krennic player and they're going to have a bad time, that is variance for the person who draws into the Krennic player. Okay. Right? So that's it, it's kind of like a global level variance. Um but I think that there's also something that I want to talk to about sideboards, and that is um, your idea of like fun meta breaker decks. And historically, and I'm not sure that this is necessarily going to be the case in Swoo, I'm going to start off by, by prefacing this, but when we look at something like Magic, we look at big Magic tournaments, I'm thinking specifically of big modern format Magic tournaments, there are so many strategies, all of which are attacking on just completely different axes. And if you're trying to build a deck that is going to have answers to everything, it is not possible. And not only is it not possible, but also the decks to which you are going to have to pack answers to particular strategies are so widely varied that in general, you have to be able to adjust your deck or else whoever draws into the person playing some weird thing just loses and you can't tech against it. There's no, you can't include tech cards. If you have a sideboard, you can have some sideboard cards against one strategy, some sideboard cards against another strategy, some sideboard cards against a third strategy. And you can ensure that your experience playing the tournament, you, the people who are playing these unusual decks are going to be favored because they're probably going to win the first game, but they're not going to be so favored that they become dominant and the a, types a, of decks a magic competitive yeah. modern magic deck is 40 cards yeah uh 60 cards 60 cards okay yeah and but and of with a that, 15 card sideboard yeah 20 cards are lands 15 yeah, to 20 ish. Yeah. Ish. yeah so you're still looking at between 40 and 50 card choices yes and swoo has the same star wars unlimited yeah. has 50 yeah. cards yeah why can't you just tech against everything in your core deck because let's let you know we talked about this card before, but let's look at the aggression card, um, Fang Viper. Uh, sorry, uh, disabling Fang Viper. Right. Sure. It's a three mana. It's a three resource ship. It's a three two in the space arena. When you play it, you can defeat an upgrade. This is not a card that you play on rate. This is not a card that you play because you are trying to have uh, an aggressive presence in space. There are cards that do a better job of that. You are playing that card for the when played ability. You may defeat an upgrade. 
and you are playing that because I am playing an aggressive deck and I need to be able to deal with upgrades, right? If I, don't, I, I don't know that I agree I with I that, but keep going. Sure, sure. Let, let, let's pretend. Yep. Let, let, let's play. Let's play pretend. If I include this card in my deck, in my in my fifty cards, my win percentage against every other deck that is not the deck that I'm trying to answer with upgrades goes down. Sure, but yeah, and I, and I, I can hear certain yeah. I can, people on the internet getting angry, but yeah, we have you already include some answers to in your deck to to questions yeah. that will not be presented in some games. Yep. So you have some cards that you want to play a hundred percent of the time, yep. every game. Yep. Those are your questions that you are posing to your opponent that you want answered. Yes. Yep. Yeah, but I, I think a card that you know is going to be a valid answer, I don't know what the threshold is, 80, 90% of the time, that's a, a a card that's still probably going into your deck, right? Yes. And to that, that's why I disagree. I actually think Disabling Fang Viper, because it targets shields, because it targets experience, maybe we'll see when we get to full maybe, Spark of yeah. Rebellion. But right now, yeah. I feel every deck's dropping one of those, if not an actual upgrade card, shields or experience tokens on something. And Okay. You know, so, but that's my read on it. But if you think that you're in a meta where there's tons of upgrades, you you know, then that's going to, you're going to run that. There are, there, a card that's valuable as a, a, an answer 80 to 90% of the time, I, I still think often rates in your deck. Yeah, you're going to have the weird matchup where you can't use it. And in that case, you resource the card. We don't have sure. dead cards in SWOO. And I know the argument is, well, so just to outline the argument, yeah. my argument, I think, of many is, you can put tech cards in your main deck, and if they don't become relevant, you resource them. And I think we can all kind of agree that that's always true. There's just like we're arguing about thresholds. What 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 is a main deck card that's almost always useful, and what is a tech card? But right. you never have a dead card, and so the argument then goes, well, why would you include a weaker, a card weaker card yeah. just be, just because you can resource it? You can resource any card. Yes. But again, I think that goes to meta literacy of including cards that you anticipate if a card's going to shut you down you can include it in yeah. your main deck and if you if it's not coming up then i mean and again you only have 10 cards to play with that's not sure eight different answers lot. that's two or no. three answers that you can include in your deck right but i mean i i want to kind of drill in on this a little bit is that from a health of the meta game standpoint there is a tendency for decks that are attacking on a weird axis uh what i'm going to call unfair linear decks to strongly dominate and most of these unfair linear decks tend to have answers somewhere in the card pool to them and if you are not allowing for sideboards if you're if all games are main deck you're doing best of three main deck these decks become more advantaged and these decks tend to be a lot less fun from or and a lot less healthy from the health of the metagame standpoint. First, can you defi define unfair linear other than weird yeah. out of left field? Sure. So a linear deck is something that's trying to do one thing. So like in in sort of a class, and that thing doesn't depend on your opponent. Uh, if you imagine like an aggro deck, an extremely aggressive deck that is basically teched to defeat a goldfish as fast as possible, is a linear deck is is a, a core linear deck another example of a linear deck might be decks that are built heavily on stacking up synergies 
you don't see these as much with the card pool that we've seen so far with uh, Spark of the Rebellion. So I'm going to use an analogy to another card game. So um, in Magic, there are a lot of decks use the graveyard as a resource. There are some decks that play almost exclusively out of the graveyard. And decks that play almost exclusively out of the graveyard, um, I'm going to call out one that I love called Dredge, is incredibly explosive because it's just trying to do one thing and attack on a weird axis. So, uh, so to tie it back into Star Wars Unlimited, might be like uh, the kind of rise of mill and vigilance in that sure. you're, just, you're ignoring yeah. your opponent. You're just essentially yeah. creating an impenetrable wall yeah. and healing up, causing them to toss a slightly few more cards than you're yeah. drawing and then just wait. Right. I mean, like if, if that were viable, so a linear deck is one that is not trying to interact with your opponent. It is trying to do its own thing. And any interaction that it has with the opponent is purely incidental. So that's I mean, linear. Unfair it, linear is essentially yeah. out of left field, unexpected. Yeah, unfair decks are not playing the game that everybody else is doing. So okay. I would say, for example, Han decks where you're getting to play cards on can. I don't think that they are unfair, but they tend more towards unfair because you are playing cards on weird resource numbers that your opponent is not expecting, right? Okay. Like normal. One of the the basic tenets of the game is that you get one resource per turn. And if you're able to play like a five resource card on four or, or a six uh, resource able, card on four or a six resource card on four uh, and deploy Han, you know, then that's a pretty significant break in the, the core sort of core structures of the game. And that's what's meant by an unfair deck is it's trying okay. to do something that is outside of the normal flow of the game. So sideboards mitigate the existence in a meta of unfair yeah. linear decks. But I think we can... They can, yeah. Sideboards are finite. They yes. can only hold so many answers. So in my mind, you're, you're only drawing a line. Yeah. An arbitrary line that we're going to yes. prevent. Without sideboards, we allow this many unfair uh, linear decks. And with sideboards, there's a smaller pool of... We're, we're now stopping the most expected unfair linear decks but still yes. other weird unfair linear decks can come in and yeah yeah and you do get that thing that you saw about like the if we go back to that krennic strategy right where we're going to pretend that there's a krennic strategy that is so out of left field nobody's expecting it it's incredibly powerful against the main decks when you have a sideboard when people are packing sideboard answers for krennic it doesn't feel as bad. It's it's okay. I lose my game one to Krennic. The other two games maybe were slightly favored, or it's a toss up. But I I have a puncher's chance. But still right? allows for shoot the moon where there's this other Sabine strategy nobody saw coming, right. and absolutely nobody saw coming for it. So nobody, yes. not only is nobody prepared, nobody sideboarded for it. Yes. It's still okay. Yeah, yeah. So you're essentially increasing the percentage of your deck that is good against your current opponent when you include a sideboard and the degree to which the your deck is good against your current opponent depends on how aggressive your sideboard cards are at answering their strategy okay okay yeah i'll allow it that that seems reasonable uh, that's yeah. i find that mildly compelling um yeah. okay another thing keep pitching that i do another thing that i do want to talk to is the idea of safety valves so let's go back to pretending that there's some kind of a degenerate unfair or let's, let's talk about an unfair strategy, not a degenerate strategy. A degenerate strategy is an unfair strategy that is so strong that basically the entire metagame shifts around either it or answering it. 
So an unfair strategy. Um, I like unfair strategies. Unfair strategies are fun. I mean, I, you know, guilty as charged, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it is fun to attack on a weird angle that nobody is expecting. It's fun to do things that are outside of the kind of core flow of the game. And the degree to which I, you know, putting on my game designer hat, the degree to which I can allow for making or allow for cards that can enable unfair strategies is heavily dependent on the degree to which I am worried about it completely destroying the game. And when you have more safety valves, and sideboards exist as a safety valve, I can lean more into designing cards that are unfair, that are weird, and not worry about um, the game essentially breaking. And beyond that, if you are a person who enjoys playing with cards that are unfair or weird, uh, that, that attack on like an unfamiliar axis, you want the designers to be able to do that and you don't want the designers to have to like design conservatively and you don't want the designers to have to uh, ban cards as much as possible. So I empathize with what you're saying. Uh, yeah. it, it gets me here uh, yeah. in that I acknowledge the Fantasy Flight devs are human beings and human beings make mistakes. Yep. And I can see why safety valves are important. Uh, I mm -hmm. don't disagree with, with with that assertion. But that still feels like that goes back to the original claim that they're a Band-Aid on bad design. That yeah. and, 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 you know, maybe a necessary Band-Aid, but it still sounds like, well, we need to have them because we might make cards that break the game, which yeah. goes back to maybe an impossible ideal of maybe don't break the game. And, and maybe that is again something we can aspire to but not reach right yeah no I, I hear you that you know you are acknowledging that probably things are going to slip through you're going to make things that are bad and you need to have ways for the metagame to evolve to it without completely distorting it and yeah that means so, that you're but acknowledging again, an imperfect world yeah you you ffg yeah. hypothetically they do something yeah. slightly yeah. not conservative enough they break yeah. the game it, it, what does a sideboard do that just putting more cards in your main deck to solve this problem, right? Like, I still don't understand why you have to have separate cards as opposed to if everybody recognizes, oh, man. I mean, I think about right now in our weird, fake, totally not real meta, I feel like yeah. every deck is either running Overwhelming Barrage or is prepared for Overwhelming Barrage. The meta has yes. warped around that card and to the extent that we have 144 cards previewed and i know yeah. the ffg devs are just like shaking their fist at the weird not real existence that we're in but it's what we're yep. in and and yep. you saw a bunch of people playing spending all day yesterday playing competitively and every deck either asked the question how do you deal with overwhelming barrage or was built to some extent with an answer of here's how i'm going to deal with overwhelming barrage i don't know right. how a sideboard helps answer that question right like you have a card. Yeah, I mean, if, if sure. FFG releases a broken card, and if it's that broken, people the people start running it, and then people will start running against it. Right. So um, answers. So you're you're kind of asking like, what kind of cards could show up in a sideboard that would answer, let's say, overwhelming barrage, right? So let's say that I am running a more controlling deck. If I'm running a more controlling deck, the I 
one of the basic ideas behind running a more controlling deck is in general you do not want to have a lot of garbage units on the battlefield you're not wanting to spend your resources on those units so if we look at regional governors regional governors is a two mana not aggressively statted card that says your opponent can't play a thing now if i'm playing a control deck i'm probably not as afraid of an overwhelming barrage maybe we haven't seen like a really hard control deck show up with the card pool that we have so far um arguably but um i might want to play regional governors in some matchups but i don't want to play it against sabine right like if i'm playing regional governors against sabine that's a bad feeling or if i'm playing it against uh some kind of like a boba fett e mid-range deck that's a bad feel right like if I'm, I'm playing a unit that is just not aggressively costed that is going to die that i'm spending my cards on that i could be spending on something else so and if you, if whatever I'm, you name they're just going to have three yeah. other cards they're happy to play just just as good yeah okay. right um so when do i want to play regional governors if my meta is sufficiently you know overwhelming barrage dominant that i really need the answer to overwhelming barrage then i'm going to play regional governors in my main deck if some people are going to be playing overwhelming barrage but not everybody is going to be playing overwhelming barrage i might put regional governors uh as an answer in my sideboard uh but you know something that you mentioned about bad design is there is a tendency for sideboards to be the home for silver bullet cards which and silver i will note ffg has no offense to the current dev team yeah a not fantastic track record uh, yeah with regards to uh designing silver bullets for the one of our three listeners who doesn't know what a silver bullet card is ned a silver bullet card is a card that is specifically designed to answer one strategy incredibly aggressively so um to use like a magic the gathering context uh the card rest in peace that exiles your opponent's graveyard or exiles are all graveyards in fact is explicitly designed for people who are sick of playing against graveyard decks is because it's useless against anybody who doesn't yes. care about their graveyard correct yeah if right. you don't care about the graveyard it does nothing if you care about the graveyard an, a lot it completely destroys you if you care about the graveyard some it's annoying so it is a silver bullet for graveyard based strategies okay does that, so does that seem like a, you're, yes yeah. so that makes sense so yeah. you're saying sideboards have a history of being home to silver bullets yes yeah and i i yes. agree that's my concern is that yeah it it just encourages this design of well here's this one card that hates on this one thing that i'm bad at and i can't properly evaluate the likelihood that i'm going to be mm. up against it because i think there's absolutely people who have been in a tournament and if you misread the meta and maybe right. i'm arguing against myself here such that you expect something to be somewhat present, so you tech for it in your sideboard, but not yeah. present enough that it needs to be in your main board. You read the meta wrong. It's so it's very, it's much more aggressively present than you thought, and now it's mm -hmm. sitting. Now every match you're essentially on the back foot for the first match until you can tech yeah. in. Then I feel like why you know why are we we're essentially jumping through a hoop to answer the question that we already had, which is should I put this card in my deck or not, right? And so yeah. why go through the hassle of shuffling in and filtering out cards after the first match when you're just moving yeah. a, a, a arbitrary line of how literate are you with the meta? I mean, because, I mean, effectively sideboards are cards that you want in your deck sometimes. And 
but sideboards are also a way to deal with cards that you don't want in your deck sometimes. And what I mean by that is uh, if we look at Takedown, which destroys a unit with five or less health in blue, um, five or less HP, if my opponent is playing, I know this sounds weird, but if my opponent is playing a strategy with few units and those units tend to have more than five HP, I'm not, I want Takedown out of and my deck. oops, All-Star Destroyer deck that right. doesn't exist It doesn't yet. do right. anything, you know, like... I need to get that out, and having a sideboard where I have more generic cards, so like Regional Governors, I think it's a perfect example of a sideboardy card, is it's probably not better than whatever you were running in the two slot, but it's uh, against most decks, but against some decks it's going to be really good, and it's better than a dead card. It's a 1-4 it's a that, uh, that attacks and blocks. Which card are you talking about? Yeah, original governors. Yeah, yeah, it's one four. Yeah, yeah. one four. Yep. yep. But that, it, I mean, it can't. It that attacks. can answer anything. Yeah. It's just not necessarily yep. worth it if you don't care about. Yes, it. exactly. Right. Okay. All right. So, uh, classic um, law school basic debate, high school debate class uh, exercise. Uh, let's argue for each other, uh, and I think I'm going to win this because to. I I find your argument's reasonably compelling whereas mine are just shoot from the emotions this is dumb so i don't know how well you're gonna be compelled by my this is dumb but ned tell me what you don't like about sideboards sideboards really reward people who are grinders and by grinders i mean people who show up to all the tournaments who know what the meta game is who know what the meta decks are for most people who play kitchen table you play kitchen table without sideboards because you're just playing like one or maybe two games against the same person um, with the same decks and if you're playing repeatedly against the same person you just change your deck right like if, right. if i'm always getting parker if i'm always getting ground down by your your blue green um luke pile then i'm just gonna start playing things with more saboteur so that i could uh ignore sure. your shields that, yeah. that's prudent i'm giving you advice yeah. now you should do that in march so copy 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 um okay. but when you are the per person who sort of eats, lives, and breathes the game, you not only know about your sideboard, you not only are thinking about sideboard design when you're building a deck, but you're also learning what you should sideboard against other meta decks. And so, like, rewarding those people is good and bad. You know, these are the people who are most invested in the game, and so they care the most about it, and so they're going to spend a lot of their energy on the game. But, you know, rewarding these people too much can be harmful to the long-term health of the game because you need new people to come in. And and um, so yeah, seven-year-old Timmy shows up to uh, to a tournament and yeah. has a pretty wild idea for a deck that nobody really anticipated because it's not the meta, wins their yeah. first game often enough to be really excited and then just gets destroyed because whatever they have, there's answers for it in the sideboard. Right, but not only that, but like, is Timmy bringing a sideboard? If Timmy's bringing a sideboard, does he know what the like big common meta decks are? Does he know right. what he needs to put, what they need to put in there? With Timmy or Tammy is putting in their sideboard, uh, does Timmy or Tammy know when they should be siding cards in and out? It's like it's an extra skill that is kind of adjacent to the game, okay. that is not in a lot of people's normal lived game experience. Let um, the hate flow mechanic, through you. Give me more. Yeah. Mechanically, they're kind of clunky, right? Like, you got this pile of 10 cards that don't show up in over a third of games, right? Like, 
in a perfect universe where every match goes to best of three, um, two-thirds of the games they will show up in, one-third of the games they won't, but in a lot of games they will show up in one of the games. Uh, sorry, in a lot of matches they will show up in one of the games. And so you will have more than 33% of the time that they just don't show up and they're not meaningful. Um, okay. You know, to the point that we talked about before about silver bullet design, it, from the designer standpoint, having sideboards encourages you to have the kinds of cards that go into sideboards because people need cards to go in their sideboards that are good against certain strategies. So it encourages you to build more specialized cards rather than cards that are just sort of generically useful in a variety of situations. And then in terms of game experience, um, playing the game, who can draw their sideboard card first is not a compelling game experience, right? Like right. if I'm playing a Degenerate Grave, you know, to go back to a Magic context, as somebody who play, loves to play Degenerate Graveyard decks, or at least unfair Graveyard decks, um, you know, playing can I draw my answer to your artifact before you draw your answer to my Graveyard shenanigans is not as interesting of a, of a match as you might think. Right. It, it leads to um, uninteresting matches. Yeah. Okay. And then finally, and this is like a mechanical concern, but when you have, if you are registering a pile of cards and you have a sideboard, you have to remember to de-sideboard. And the number of times that people have lost games because they forgot to de-sideboard is much greater than zero, right? Like if you have shuffled some cards into your deck to answer uh, your opponent in round two, you have to remember to de-sideboard before you go into round three. And if you don't, and there's a judge watching, um, you get a game loss, and that stinks. I It'll be interesting to see the rules for Constructed. Yeah. I know, uh, and I could be wrong on this, but it was my understanding that, for example, Flesh and Blood, by virtue of the fact that allows you to uh, tap into your sideboard before the first match because you yeah. have a you get to know the essentially the leader that you're up against. Mm -hmm. And I could imagine a situation where, and, and maybe I'm wrong, I'm not super up on Flesh and Blood, but that is an answer to that, that if you're allowed to tech in yeah. your sideboard before the first game. And so similarly, why not allow that? You have 60 cards and yeah. you're allowed to set up to 10 of them aside. Mm -hmm. Then it doesn't matter if you've forgotten to reshuffle. You just have a weird uh, graveyard, you know, a discard pile answer deck when yeah. really what you should have been prepared for was a rebel deck that doesn't care about the discard, the discard pile. pile so. Yeah, yeah. Yep, Hopefully they can, you know, we, we'll, yep. we'll see if that's actually an issue. Uh, three things I love uh, about sideboards. Go. One, uh, this was from the recent q and I believe it was Danny, but one of the designers noted that one of the nice things about sideboards is that they're an answer to mill. That not only will mill be somewhat viable, uh, more than zero viable in SWU, but that that's one of the reasons for sideboards is that they're a fantastic answer. You're up against a sideboard, just shuffle, or up against the mill deck, shuffle 10 cards in your deck. Your deck is now bigger. I love that as an answer. Uh, it's not specific cards. That just resonates with me of a, no, you can't play your weird non-interactive game. I'm done. Yeah. I like them, and this we haven't talked about this, but some games allow you, uh, Magic famously, some others, have allowed you to look uh, in your collection to go outside, forget the sideboard to allow, to allow you to go outside the gate, your deck to get some magical mm -hmm. wishful thinking card. 
as a historically kitchen table player, I love those cards. I think they're amazing. They're very much an I hate you and I don't like you. And I'm going to go get the card that says, don't be like this, Ned. Yeah. And <laughs> projecting a little maybe. And I, I, I acknowledge sideboards is a great way to solve that problem in a competitive format. When I'm at the kitchen table and all my cards are in the car or in the room next to me and I don't like you, I can just, yeah, we'll all grab a beer okay. and take yeah. a leak and who cares. But in a tournament, you need to kind of bound that search. So people aren't carrying like huge binders worth of stuff everywhere. Of every possible yeah. card of, hmm, yeah. yeah, exactly. So I, I, I think there's some value there. I don't like making decisions. I'm one of those people who, when deck building starts with 95 cards in my 30 card deck and then spends two weeks, you know, takes me five minutes to put together a shell that's as three times the size of the deck and then spends two weeks chopping it down and every decision is painful. And so a sideboard just means I get to have more cards in my deck. So I have to, you know, I get to love all my children just a little bit more. And so I'm pro that. But I, I find the arguments compelling. I'm not swayed by them. Uh, I, I, I have I, I have reframed my my opinions on sideboards from strong disgust to a chill dislike. So I'm, I'm I, I find your arguments compelling, Ned. I just I, I I feel like I still feel like they kind of undermine some. They value one type of skill, yeah. The ability to read all decks over a local literacy. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong. So, okay, is there is there a better way we could do this? Is there a, a better way we could solve these problems of unfair linear decks? And I happen to have a couple in my back pocket. Okay, uh, unsurprisingly. So one is what you see in some games uh, as a conquest format. So that is rather than bringing a sideboard, you bring many decks and you can play each deck only once. And you're trying okay. to win some number of games with your set of three decks. So what I mean by that is if I was playing you, Parker, I might bring like a Krennic deck, a Luke deck, and a Han deck, for instance. Okay. And there are rules about construction, like sometimes they can share no cards, sometimes there are rules that they can share only some subset of cards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, but basically, you're, you're each bringing three decks and you're playing the decks against each other. Um, so, you know, you get, you get to play more decks. That's great. Um, things I don't like about that, you're having, you have to bring three decks or, or that... however many decks has that conquest mechanic and I'm familiar with it, but I'm not familiar with yeah. it in a paper setting. I have never seen it in a paper setting. So that is a digital solution to the sideboard problem. It seems like that way. I mean, having people bring more decks can be nice, but you know, I I'm, don't give FFG. I, I for ideas. one would love the to buy play more three decks, competitive. But, yeah. Buy three yeah. competitive constructive yeah. decks. Is, <laughs> let's build our uh, format yeah. where you have to own legendaries in all six, six aspects. Yeah. So, Okay. Yeah. And then the other problem with it is uh, because you have to have three separate constructed quality decks, it requires a very deep card pool. Like if some aspects, if, if you're requiring different aspects among the, the cards, if one or two aspects are just garbage, then you're forcing everybody to play with some amount of garbage. And that's not what people came here to do. Okay. Yeah. 
Uh, and obviously, like, Spark Swoo is new, Sparkly Rebellion is a deep card pool, but not the world's deepest card pool, and that's the kind of thing that will tend to go away with time. But, yeah. you know, first impression matters a lot. Okay. Uh, another option that I've seen are what are called uh, wishboard cards. So you were mentioning these before in Magic the Gathering, the wish cycle of cards that let you go through your entire collection and go get a thing. In a competitive environment, instead, uh, you go get something from your sideboard. But um, there's a variety of cards like that that let you go get something from some predefined list of cards. Uh, in Eternal, there are markets yes. uh, that let you go get something from your predefined list of cards that you wish you had in your deck. Uh, as I mentioned, Hearthstone, uh, the current version of ETC, lets you go get a card from a predefined list. I played a good chunk of Eternal. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, the mar market, which was, for those who've never played Eternal, was five cards that you set aside at the beginning of the game uh, that were defined as part of your deck as being in your market. You had five cards. And a lot of cards will say something like, get a card from your market, swap a card into your market and get one out or whatever. But they were accessible. In my experience, they were rarely used as, in a sense, tech answers. And they were almost always used as tutors. The game didn't have mm. a lot of tutors. So you wouldn't put the weird answer that you had for some off-meta deck in your market, especially because it's only five cards. You would put the big bomb question in there and then you would use your market to just tutor it out it was there when you were ready to get it into your hand and so that didn't feel like that solved a lot of the, the eternal mean, just eternal specifically yeah, yeah. well i to go back to the magic gathering case um there is a card currently heavily played or at least has been recently heavily played in the modern format card the great creator that goes to your sideboard and gets a card, and what people do is they, they specifically stock uh, the questions in this, the sideboard. Like, they, they're not answers, they're not going to get an answer. It is just a tutor for good cards that they want. Okay. So. Well, uh, I, I think we have beat this sideboard to death. And Sideboarded to death? Sideboarded to death. And, uh, and I think uh, we should move on. Unless you have any other thoughts, Ned, I'm prepared to move on to our next segment. I'm happy to move on to the next segment. All right, for our next segment, Ned, what is your real name? My name is Monday. My name is Monday. I'm a mathematician. So, I wanted to mix things up. Last time, we tried to use cost to predict stats, and now we're going to do the reverse. We're going to try and use stats to predict cost. You're going to have to walk me through that one briefly. Okay, so um, when you're using the tool that I'm using, which is called linear regression, you have some number of inputs, and these inputs can be multiple, and you are predicting a single output. So when you're using cost to, to try and predict stats, the output of stats has to be a single value. So you have to look only at the total stat value. So uh, cost, I tried to throw in a bunch of other things, but essentially the you know cost is the biggest predictor of stats, unsurprisingly. But because you can have multiple inputs to predict a single output, when you're going from stats to cost, you can see how do the designers value, at least in the currently uh, revealed card pool, the uh, cost, essentially how much does a point of power cost? How much does a point of hit points cost? Uh, is it the case that they are both valued the same by the designers or not? Uh, and that's the question that we want to answer today. Okay. Yeah. 
So uh, should I answer it? Yeah, please. How do the designers value power and how do the designers value HP? So I'm going to repeat the caveats that I mentioned before. Um, I am running a regression against all currently revealed units, both ground and space. Uh, for some units, specifically only the 97th Legion, I am manually remapping their power and hit points because um, otherwise they would be a 7 cost 0, 0, which is not, that, that's an extreme outlier and it just fundamentally doesn't work. So I'm going to jump in Yeah, yeah. and give a caveat to you, dear listener. Uh, yes. Specifically, the one in the car, also uh, with a decent understanding of stats, greater understanding of stats than I. Uh, yeah. Whenever we're doing these kind of models, I, I, there will be some zhuzhing. And rather yes. than caveat it every time, uh, yep. we're not the only ones running a, a spreadsheet of the cards. We're not the only ones with the CSV. I, we're the only ones so far that I've seen that have generated the kind of graphs that you've generated. But if you ever need us to defend the math where you're saying, I'm getting thrown off here, how are you doing it? Something like 97th Legion, which we're just in, pretending is a 7-7. Seven, seven. Yep. We're, we're, there's going to be a couple massages there to get the data to more accurately reflect the as-played reality. Um, yes. We, we're not going to necessarily, you know, Right now, Ned, uh, you were telling me earlier today that uh, things like a wing leader, which give plus yes. two, plus two worth mm -hmm. of stat, so four points of stat yes. in the form of experience tokens, you're not taking that yeah. into account currently. I am not. When there's not a currently. change in how you're generating things or those models, yeah. I think we'll kind of signpost that once, but then let's, you know, that caveat will just exist, yeah. dear listener. Like if you ever want us yes. to re, uh, if you, uh, what, what's the term in science? Repeatability. Uh, yes, replicability. Yeah. Replicability. Thank you. We're here for you. Uh, we're prepared. Ned is prepared. I will do nothing. Uh, email us podcast at swoodb.com and Ned will get into arguments about the, the I'm banality. I'm ha happy of the to get into discussions. I'm not not pulling out the big statistical guns on this because we only have uh, less than a hundred examples. Sure. So there's there's no point in if you're not running at least a million Monte Carlo simulations, Ned. No. What are we even doing here? So <laughs> I did that when we were playing Arkham. Is I, yeah. I actually did a hundred thousand simulations of the Chaos Bag to to get some some numbers come out. So it was, it was that's why I time. play games with you. So <laughs> it's good to have one of those in the group. I don't want to be one of those in the group, but it's good to have one. So so let's look at how the designers value uh, power and hit points. Um, so again, uh, regressing, as we talked about before, uh, what we find is that the regressions for power and hit points against cost are pretty robust. And the way that it works is that the designers tend to value a point of power at about 0.73 worth of cost, 0.74 worth of cost. So if I had a unit that was a one power zero hit point unit, for whatever reason, the designers would cost that at According to the currently revealed cards, the entirety of the card pool, not just constructed tier cards, uh, the designers would value that at about 0.74 worth of cost. So about four zero, power, zero hit point would cost three resources is what you're saying. About, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. About three quarters, yep. Hit points are about 0.35 uh, per hit point. So that a, it's about half as much as the point of power, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, and then the to, to give you some... Uh, Nice statistical bona fides. Both of these were highly significant with uh, p-values well outside of the region of confusion. The uh, inner quartile range, um, not the inner quartile range. Wow, that's much better than the inner quartile range. Uh, essentially, the two standard deviation range is um, 
about plus or minus uh, a half. So you're, I feel reasonably confident in these, these numbers with the currently revealed card pool. Um, and we get an R squared on the fit of 0.97, which uh, R squareds go up to one. Okay. Where one is that everything falls perfectly on a line. So uh, feeling, pretty feeling good. funky, feeling fresh. Pretty good. Pretty dang good. Okay. I'm smiling and nodding, but my, my wife loves yeah. musicals, and sometimes we'll talk about them, and I'll smile and nod too. So I, I trust what you are saying, Ned. I'm following along at about 40, 40%. Yeah. Uh, more percentages. Anyway, uh, so the designers are seeming to value power at about twice the rate of hit points. And I think that that matches if we look at the currently uh, spoiled units. Is If we look at, for example, two resource units, there's an awful lot of two threes. There's not a lot of three twos. If we look at the overstatted one cost units of R2-D2 um, as being our particular standout, that, that's a one four. Um, where if you had a 4-1 for one cost, I think that that would both from an intuitive standpoint and then from a game standpoint be a much more impactful card. I would, well, I we would have one and it costs three, right? Yes. Yeah. And I would argue that Greedo, for example, as a 3-1 for one is a much bigger threat to the game state than R2 is, even though it, when we're just looking at total stats, R2 has higher numbers. But if we consider these adjusted stats, um, it tracks with our intuition and it seems to track with what the game designers have revealed so far. So, um, and when you say tracks with that, our intuition, yeah. that's because, I mean, in my mind, that's a distinction between yeah. something like magic in that damage here persists. So yes. hit, hit points have in a sense, less value because they don't reset to They full. get used up, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is that power doesn't attacking, get used up. Power does not get used up. Your, your Greedo does not get worn down by, uh, bashing into your opponent's face. It's at full full power until it goes away. Um, so, yeah, that I think that that's really interesting. And uh, the result of this, which I'm not including in this segment because this episode has already gone on uh, quite a bit, is uh, that we can then take these results and go back to our initial regression and add in some more complexity. We can layer in some more complexity because we now know that when we're evaluating units power and hit points rather than evaluating them as a single, just add the numbers together and see what number you get, we know that we need to value power considerably more in our regression than hit points. And we will get a better view of what the designers feel like is an accurate amount of stats for a cost. Well, I feel like you're being a little bit of a tease, Ned. I look forward to when we do get to uh, run that math. But again, that's part of us trying to thread that needle between exhaustive and exhausting. So if, if you feel that's best held off, I will back you all the way. Uh, I think that it is at this time because I think that for the next round, I want to see if I can do uh, a little bit more analysis around the space tax, where I've been previously not talking extensively about the space tax because my significance numbers weren't as good as I wanted them to be, and I really want things to be rock solid, and that's mostly going to depend on just more cards showing up. And having better values for, for stats gives us more accuracy. Um, so, see you next month. And that's all she wrote. Thank you for joining us. This was episode two of The Force Unlimited. We're recording on November 19th, Year of Our Lord, 2023. Uh, you can find us on theforceunlimited.com. I think we're supposed to be doing a call to action here. 
but we generally slam the like button, subscribe, thumbs up, follow us on social media. But Ned, send me, yeah, send you what, Ned? That I want to hear. (laughs) Boxes of candy. Okay, no, don't, don't do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you would like to send us something, please send it to us uh, at podcast at swoodieb.com. Uh, you can find all of our links on theforceunlimited.com. Ned, if you have anything that you need to explain why I'm wrong, you can save it until next episode. But if you have any final thoughts tonight about sideboards, now is your last chance. I wish there was something different than sideboards. They're the, the least worst option uh, as... Uh, uh, Churchill said of democracy, the, the, the worst, except for all the others. Yes. Uh, the yeah. worst, except for all the others. Thank okay. You. I, I think yeah. I agree with that. You know, at, at the end of this yeah. conversation, I agree. They're terrible and there just aren't any yeah. better solutions. Uh, yeah. and with that, dear listener, we will see you in two weeks. Adios. Adios.